there and welcome to ADIPEC Energy Dialogues, a series of conversations with energy experts from around the world, bringing you up to date with trends in the industry and what's impacting your business right now. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined now with Rebecca Fitz. She's the Senior Director, of course, with the Center for Energy Impact for the Boston Consulting Group. Rebecca, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on today. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, there's a lot going on, of course, in the industry at the moment. You must be very, very busy. But when you, you tend to look at this industry, though, from maybe a different, a different focus, mainly structural and performance, you look at that point of view. And really, when we look at the state of the oil and gas industry at the moment, and we look, here we are at the turning point of 2020, where do you see that this pandemic and this crisis has perhaps been any different than any other crisis they've gone through? Well... I reflect a lot lately as we've been helping our clients work through, um, you know, the after effects of probably the worst in oil price environment we've ever seen in our lifetime. And what I reflect is that this is the third oil price crash in 12 years. Oil price crashes are becoming a feature rather than an exception in this landscape. And as we look at where different portfolios are and where different companies are, they're not going into this crisis completely unprepared. After 2014-2015, companies took dramatic actions to improve the cost structure, to get rid of some of the profligacy that had characterized spending by EMP companies, you know, between 2008 and 2014. And a lot of effort to take cost out of the system, to focus portfolios on areas where companies perceived they had competitive advantages and therefore cost advantages. Um, so companies are going into this crisis having spent the past six years dealing with an oil price crisis. But what's striking about this crisis is that in some respects, it's not clear that fundamental portfolios, despite all the cost savings, are that much better positioned to deal with low prices. The driving mission after 2014 was, let's lower the break-evens in these portfolios. But, you know, when we were looking at this in January 2020, or March 2020, or April 2020, the, the, essentially the break-even prices of these portfolios of the large, a large integrated oil and gas companies so the CapEx break-even was about $45 per barrel. That's a big improvement from 2014. But if you look at what's the shareholder value proposition, as important as CapEx break-even is dividend break-even. And at the end of 2019, when we looked at those books, most of these companies were looking at a, at a, CapEx, a CapEx plus dividend break-even in the $65 per barrel range right at where oil prices were in 2019. So at $65, we're looking at a you know, rough break-even, CapEx plus dividends. So it actually begs the question, you know, is there a structural change in their portfolio? You know, if these are lower return portfolios, and how do these companies um, confront structural change? Can they confront structural change in the cost structure by another round of cost cutting or something new required? That's a tough one because when you look back at the challenges I think that have been there, 
for the last few years. I mean, and nobody, not just the oil and gas industry, but no industry really saw this coming, even though it was probably there on their big, you know, outrageous hope it'll never happen disaster management plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, as you say, too, that people really, you know, globally paid attention to this. But have the oil industry, I mean, and when you talk to your clients too, you know, they seem to be coming up with a much different message in the last few years. They seem to be talking a lot more, you know, about consolidation, about, or, you know, cooperation rather, not consolidation. We do, that's probably what they're talking about right now, but we don't want that discussion. But about collaboration, cooperation, it seemed there was a bit more of a cohesive message. But actually, you know, what are they battling with? What do you think they've really been struggling with in the last few years? I, one thing that jumps out to me is that the upstream oil and gas business, I mean, if you ask anybody, you know, what's, what's upstream and gas, what's the benefits of it? And a lot of times, you know, going back decades, this has been viewed as a high return industry, a high enough return industry that, you know, it can afford massive dividend payments. And the oil and gas industry is among the highest oil dividend players, payers globally. But when we look at it, I mean, we have some clear benchmarks in the, you know, that we can look at. In 2006, for example, oil prices were about $65 per barrel on average annually. In 2019, it was the same price. But if we look at upstream returns, in 2006, of the super majors, average upstream return on capital employed was greater than 27%. If we look at 2019, average upstream return on capital employed from the super majors at the same oil price was about 3%. That's a major structural difference in the sector. And I think in some respects, that's a common challenge that every single integrated oil and gas company confronts, a fundamentally different returns proposition. Now, I think there are a couple responses to that. In some ways, there's a common response. The common response is capital preservation, balance sheet management, impairments on the value of assets, and you know, more divestment. That's, those are the common reactions. Strategically, the industry has been characterized by perhaps more strategic differences among the large companies than we've ever seen before, since, you know, roughly since 2014, as companies said, we need to focus to drive better results. Well, that focusing mechanism actually drives strategic differentiation. And I think looking into 2020, What's amazing is that we've already seen these big companies look more different than probably they ever have before. And 2020 and the response to COVID is actually we're seeing further separation when we think about, you know, how companies respond to energy transitions, what they believe about future demand, and will it recover or not. And I think that you have differentiation in the upstream starting in 2014 followed increasingly by more differentiation in corporate strategy around how to deal with you know energy transitions and not just deal with it how to capitalize on it and create opportunity in a changing energy system now when you talk to your clients and obviously they're you know they need that help they need that advice they need you to be right in there with them looking at that strategic 
you know, uh, platform and looking at that strategic environment at the minute here. Where, what are they looking at that might work? Because the fat has almost come out of the industry. They've put the efficiencies in place. They've been putting them in place, as you said, for several years. But what's the next step that can actually, you know, help them to survive, basically? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is what, I, what we've been seeing is, you know, there's a reason upstream returns are lower. And that's because of access constraints. You know, that NOCs have, you know, or this is, you know, a slow moving process over decades. NOCs have increasingly um, owned the low cost resource. And so there's a conversation about access, what risk tolerances are appropriate for a large international oil and gas company. And is there, can we revise contract terms or access requirements to be able to access low cost barrels? Now, I would say that our clients have a range of opinions about, about that and, and what their risk tolerances are and what always comes back to me is different companies have incredibly different strategic beliefs about what their, you know, what their capabilities are and what their risk tolerances are. So ultimately you can settle on a common discussion, but the right answer will be different for each company. The other thing we're engaging a lot with is, you know, I, I guess it's a twofold challenge. You know, what are, you know, what does the energy transitions look like? That's one, and a lot of that is captured in future expectations around demand and future expectations around policy as it impacts demand and priorities. The other part is, you know, looking, I look a lot at total shareholder return or TSR for these large companies. And one of the things we consistently see companies grappling with, again, from their own point of view and from their own context and framework, is how do you position for the future while ensuring in the near term that shareholders are appropriately rewarded and along for the ride? And that is a very common question that, that you know, we see our clients struggling with and grappling with. And actually the most, the, the most exciting examples of this are companies not just challenged by it, but say, how do we create opportunities here? And so there's a couple of different conversations, but it's all tied to, okay, we have short-term things we have to do. We have to ensure, you know, staff safety. We have to ensure that we take costs out and we have to maintain, you know, we have to preserve capital. But long-term, what are the steps needed to not just to survive, but just thrive as they come out of a very, very difficult market environment. And of course, right now being in the middle of that very difficult time too and wondering what they're going to do and how they're going to keep their shareholders on board. We're looking at, you know, we've had some pretty scary and pretty disappointing and only to be expected, you know, first quarter results. Now we're looking at the second quarter results, you know, from all indications, they can't be great. They're not going to be great there. But this is, it's, it's a tough time you know, for the CEOs and indeed for the shareholders and looking at that dividend that they've always depended on. And as you say, the changes that are going on there. How are things faring like in the short term, do you think for the end of the year and how are CEOs going to handle, you know, the first half results and then hopefully, you know, move into something better for the second half of the year? Um, 
I think one of the things BCG has found is we consistently, we interview investors or we survey investors quite a lot to make sure we have the, our ear on the pulse or our finger on the pulse of investor sentiment. And one of the clear messages coming out is you know, transparency is good. Um, everyone understands the market environment. Investors aren't going to be surprised by challenged second quarter results. I mean, we hit negative prices for a day in the second quarter. I mean, the second, that, that second quarter results are um, going to not be the best is not a surprise to anybody. But transparency um, is key. Now, the, down, the risk to transparency is any new transparency. You can't take it away at the end. So it's a very careful balance because once you, you say something new or provide new sorts of guidance, that's here to stay because investors don't want it taken away. Um, another thing we've seen just in the near term, and you know, this is easier to say than to do, but when BCG looks at what's driving the valuation multiple a lot, and I think our methodology for looking at the valuation multiple is quite strong. I, I always enjoy to get into it. Um, and when we look at the super majors, we've always been struck by there's basically seven variables that help explain performance of the multiple. Um, and they're financial, they're debt, and they're payout related predominantly and, and reserves related. And what we've seen in the past month or two is striking because instead of seven, we're kind of down to one or two variables driving um, sentiment about a company. And that's dividends, like to the extent that companies are willing to maintain dividends. Now, you know, that actually to us signals underlying confidence that earnings will continue, but it also signals in the near term uh, Cutting the dividend might be required and might be responsible for some, not for all, but the share price in the near term is certainly going to be impacted, impacted by it. So that, that's an important issue in the near term. Now, of course, when we look at the industry sector at the moment, who are the investors? Who are the big investors? I mean, the companies really, you know, the industry has to be reinvesting all the time here. And also, what are the big constraints? Um, on investment in the hydrocarbon industry at the moment? Um, well, the energy sector, like others, I, I'll just answer the first part really quickly. Like all other in sectors, there's an increasing number of index investors, index fund investors. So we're certainly seeing that like um, any other sector. For the larger companies, and this is a huge sector with lots of different types of companies, of course, but for the big super majors, um, we're still getting a lot of value and even some growth investors in the in the sector. But I, I think the the big story here is just the declining weighting of energy versus in the S and P 500. So going from 15% of the weighting a couple of years ago to 4% now, um, which you know speaks to some of the pessimism in the sector. Now what? seems there's a number of factors all interrelated that seem to be dimming investor sentiment to the sector. I think a big one is of course price. Um, the EMP or the 
oil and gas industry and some historically has always been a bit of a play on price um, always. And if price is high, that's great. And if price is low, you're in for a rough ride. Um, but what, but sentiment around price right now in the advent of U.S. shale with its, you know, interaction with, with the market has become more and more bullish. Now, there are growth upsides always. If price goes high, that's a, a TSR tailwind. But I have been struck by the extent to which investor sentiment is muddied around price, um, which will impact valuation. It impacts expectation of future price flows, and it, it's a big deal. So, you know, we, we move from a supply-constrained world premised on the idea that prices will go up forever. And now we've entered a world where, you know, supply is less of a concern, but demand is a big deal. And if demand is the primary variable, that's bearish for prices. And that flows in to how investors think about that sector. It's also tied to the energy transitions. The energy transitions is, it's a big conversation, but a big piece of it is what does it mean for demand for oil and gas products? And so you have, on the one hand, concern about you know, prices as it's embedded in demand. But in, on the other hand, you have concern about business model overall. Does energy transitions um, presage a major reduction in the need for oil and gas? And I think a lot of oil and gas companies say, you know, we need an energy transition. We need to be cleaner. But that is a near-term investor concern as well as a societal concern and, um, you know, and a company concern. So you get- Yes, there's so many variables in that. I mean, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But also we're looking at, you know, demand at the minute, and I don't think we've ever seen it fall so low as we have during this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Definitely it's coming back but we wonder if it will come back to post-COVID levels. And particularly, I think, as we look towards this year. But also in the bigger picture, we look at all of those energy outlooks. And oil demand, or not necessarily oil demand, energy demand is definitely growing. And I think we've also got commitments from some of developing countries that they have more access to energy. So when we look at that wider picture, energy demand is definitely growing. But when we think about it then, you know, oil and gas should be a part of fossil fuels, hydrocarbons, whatever we're going to call them in our, in our new transition world, should be a part of the energy mix for some time to come. But you're saying again, it's the level of demand that I guess has some people running scared. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I think everyone agrees that there's a need for oil and gas for the foreseeable future. And because oil and gas investments decline annually at varying paces, it requires a certain level of reinvestment annually just to stay in place, let alone grow. But I think if you're looking at, you know, where is a different, where are different companies positioned on that mix to meet supply? And you have different, you know, you have different positioning. Some companies are positioned to be the last low-cost supplier out there. Other companies are looking at upstream returns that appear structurally lower and say, where do I sit on that mix to be a provider of energy in the future? So I agree, oil and gas is, is 
a necessary part of our energy mix for quite some time. If we're looking at listed publicly traded companies, um, that's not under debate, but the investment investor sentiment around demand certainly colors um, expectations for what different companies will deliver. And it, it's a work in progress. It is indeed. And when we're listening to the narrative of the CEOs of all of the oil and gas companies, I mean, we're beginning to hear more about energy companies and we're really beginning, I think, to, to have everybody looking in that cleaner, greener future for sure. And only, you know, July, here we are, the turning point of the year, the International Energy Agency held that first ever, you know, mega clean energy summit and really looking at governments to put policy in place, looking at investments to drive all of this to, you know, without a doubt, the energy transition is, you know, has been escalated. And I think the oil and gas industry, it's, it, it has to go along with it and really become part of that essential energy industry. Do you think they're ready for it? Are they, and can you guys, can you help them to make sure they're ready for it? Because it ultimately is going to mean their survival and, and hopefully, you know, their, their future longevity, so to speak. Well, I would, I, I think I would say there's different ways to get ready for the energy transition. And at BCG, we try to focus on, you know, each of the different component parts. And one critical way is not, I mean, certainly one way to get there is investing outside the core in new businesses and try to build scale in new cleaner energy businesses. Another way to get there is by looking at the core of the operation and saying, when are they profitable enough in order to fund the transition? The, the money for funding a transition is going to come from core operations. So when are they profitable enough? What can we do about costs to make them truly competitive to maintain investors in the near term and pay for what we be in the future? So we would hold profitability of the base is critical to, to the drive to getting there. But the other part of that, if looking at the base, is it's undoubtable that base operations need to be cleaner and greener. And there's a long way to go to get there. And, and we're seeing companies say, hey, maybe we're not ready to go big into a new area. We don't understand how that fits our core capabilities. We perceive our core capabilities to be in exploitation of oil and gas but we know we need to be cleaner. And so there's a big effort to say part of the journey, a critical part of the journey is doing everything we can to take emissions out of the base business. And, and it's not spoken to as much, but it's something when we engage with different companies, we're seeing you know, more and more critical. And that's, that's a fun sort of you know, engagement to do because it's, you know, it's, it, it accepts that oil and gas is, is a critical part of the energy matrix today and into the future. But oil and gas operations itself, it's a huge mandate to be both more profitable given the current environment and also cleaner so that you have a license to operate going into the future. So that's a big element of, of some of the engagements we've done is looking at the base and then of course there's a lot of engagement around okay perhaps the core business might not you know 
it's important, but perhaps that's not enough. So there's a set of, a set of, you know, a lot of work on, you know, what are appropriate targets? And also once you've established the appropriate targets with enough diligence, what type of activities are important to that? So they can be, again, primarily in the core or primarily in new ventures. So we're seeing a lot of different engagement. And, and I would say on the whole, a whole lot of seriousness and a whole lot of discipline on the part of our clients, which is impressive in terms of, you know, making a transition to being cleaner and greener and good corporate citizens in order, because it's what's right, but also, you know, to be part of the solution. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about where government policy fits into this and, you know, who's, who's getting it right. Is Europe, I would think, sort of ahead of the game. They're looking at the new Green Deal, what's happening in the U.S. And, you know, we have to look at a political, big political year in the U.S., you know, who, who comes into power, how different, you know, could it be? Should the Democrats get power in America? So all of that, you know, in terms of government legislation and regulation and policy, how important is that for the hydrocarbon industry right now. And I mean, I'm sure it's impacting the decisions that are made every day as well. I, I think one of the clearest things in, in working in the oil and gas sector for a long time, one of the clearest things about policy, if you think about the nature of investment decisions in this sector, you know, you're making 20 to 30 year investments. I mean, this is outside some of the short cycle, but even including the short cycle investments, I mean, you build portfolios for 20 and 30 years. And I think one of the clearest things that's required or helpful is policy clarity and policy certainty. And one of the things that, you know, we've, one of the things that I hear consistently is, you know, regardless of what the policy is, so long as we know what it is, and this could be, you know, putting a cost on emissions, it could be carbon pricing, any, anything. But so long as there's transparency about what the policy is, it aids the ability to make long-term investment decisions. And it aids, you know, the strategy development process. And so um, I think different companies have different ideas about their desired policy outcomes, but all you know, could understand we're making a long-term decision that requires policy certainty. And I think in the past couple of years, um, without commenting on what region is doing it better or not, but certainly the, if, if there's not a policy, if the policy isn't clear, or there is no policy, in some cases there isn't policy on certain things, I think it becomes, it becomes you know, essentially it, it challenges the social license to operate because in the absence of policy, companies um, engage more with public sentiment than policy sentiment. And so I, I do think this, you know, the desired outcome, regardless of what policy is, is policy certainty to respond to it. Now, that's hard to get total policy certainty when administrations change and politics change, but I do think, you know, as there's a growing consensus on, you know, certain things, particularly in Europe, the policy certainty becomes a little bit more clear about how it will manifest. 
and again, a huge responsibility on the part of the governments as well, because they have to realize too, I think, how vital energy is. You know, so while we move through the transition, um, right now, as you say, hydrocarbons are very much part of the mix. And I do think we're hearing from the companies to, you know, that they're doing what they can and doing their best and they have to, I think they're on board to make sure they're delivering, you know, a greener, cleaner fuel and making sure that that energy, you know, fits into the mix and can be incorporated. And it's, it, it is about their survival. Just before we, we wrap up, I was reading one of your reports just recently and you'd outlined sort of five areas where the upstream transformation really where you're focusing. And you know, among this was like digitalization, workflow, future proofing, understanding the future, and indeed transforming shareholder value, which we've talked a bit about there. But just perhaps if you can kind of wrap it up a bit for me there in terms of these key areas that you're engaging with your clients on day by day and really helping the big um, energy corporations just you know, refocus, mm -hmm. I suppose, because that's what they're going to have to do. Right, absolutely, and and I, I I'm gonna I'll start with digital and just and where we're coming to with digital and also some of the supply chain work. You know, the digital work that BCG does has become an increasingly important part of our our client interactions. But why? And I think the why is interesting, and it goes back to some of the structural, the appearance of structural deterioration in returns in the upstream. Um, how do you break out of that? How do you break out of lower returns? On the one hand, you could pray for higher prices, which I don't think anyone in the sector thinks is appropriate, um, particularly right now. On the other hand, you go back again and say post-2014, a lot of the efficiency improvements were project management related incredibly important efficiency improvement, but how do we run, pro what, how do we run projects to, to take the fat out? But now we're, again, our third price shock, and it comes to, a, okay, we need to fundamentally change how we approach a lot of our operations in the sector and apply new technologies. And I think there's huge promise in applying, you know, completely new technologies embedded in digital solutions to actually confront the structural you know, deterioration and returns. And I think that you know, becomes one of the single most important things that particularly IOCs do, but the entire sector in, in changing the profitability outcome in their core operations. Supply chain is you know, adjacent to that and is involved in fundamentally reworking you know, how things are done in order to improve the cost outcomes. Um, and I keep coming back to upstream because again, upstream pays for things. And hence, if you, if you improve, and it might not pay for things in 20 years. We don't, we don't know that. But today and tomorrow and for the next 10 years, it, it will. And so we start with transforming the upstream and that flows into some of the shareholder. If you can get a better outcome there, um, that actually enables and facilitates a more healthy total shareholder return offerings for, for shareholders. Now, when we go back in time and see when upstream returns were in the 27% range, 
that in and of itself doesn't matter for total shareholder returns. What does matter is that having money facilitates capital allocation patterns conducive to better shareholder returns. And so we see the upstream is highly tied to the near-term value proposition of these companies. And then on the understanding the future, I mean, one always needs to think about the future and we have clients that have very, very sophisticated scenario planning exercises. And in, and in this industry particularly, and I think when we really look at it now and we know how uncertain things are and how quickly things change. So it is about doing your best to future-proof. And as you say, understand, do your best to understand that future. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So a lot of work to be done, still a lot of challenges there. It'll keep you busy. All of our friends at Boston Consulting Group, I think it'll be kept very busy for the file here. But fascinating discussion. Thank you, Rebecca, so much to really be looking at more of the strategic side of this, you know, because it is something I think that apart from the day-to-day -day work and production that goes on that sometimes I'm perhaps so caught up in. It is, it's just fascinating to take a step back. So I really want to thank you, Rebecca Fitz. Thank you for all of your input from the Boston Consulting Group, of course, from the Center for energy impact and you know good luck with all your great work and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon and from all of us here at adipec energy dialogues thank you all thank you for having me on